return of the midweeks. Dear friends, it's the midweek. We are in the book of Samuel again, and we're going to be reading about Saul's Chernobyl moment where he's really going to melt down in such a way that it's going to irradiate Israel for years to come. The big issue is that God gives him a mission and he doesn't do it with faith all the way. Instead, he's going to be manipulative about it and Samuel is going to confront Saul and this is the end of his uh, kingship. It's not the end of his reign. He gets to reign until his death, but his kingship is over in as much as that none of his sons are going to be chosen to be king. Instead, God's going to raise up another king. And that's the, the important part about this um, chapter for the rest of the book is that Samuel is going to declare that God is going to raise up somebody else to be king over Israel. But without further ado, let's read this story. Verse 1 of chapter 15, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of, of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Am- Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. All right, so the background here is that when Israel was coming out of Egypt, this is generations ago, um, the nation of Amalek attacked them as they were sojourning. They were wandering through the desert. They hadn't come to their, their land yet, and Amalek attacked them. And what the Lord is saying here is it's now time for uh, justice against Amalek as in their, their betrayal of Israel, as Israel was uh, a wandering people and a homeless people. Instead of giving them um, hospitality, they attacked them and tried to destroy them. And so Israel is now going to be God's tool for justice against this nation. And Saul is tasked with bringing it about. And what you have here is this call to a Hebrew phrase called harem. And harem is when God, it's, it's where it says devote to destruction. It's where God says these things are now coming into the place of holiness where they're too holy to let exist on the earth. They now belong to me 100%. And so you give them to me by destroying them. And so harem is, um, was the method for conquest and it's the complete removal of something from the earth so that it belongs to God alone. And in this case, it was uh, part of an act of judgment and justice against this nation. And I understand that this is um, theologically disturbing for for many people nowadays. We live in a, a time where Canada hasn't seen war for a long time. And we're just very far removed from these ancient times where this kind of like all-out war was very, very common. And if you remember the end of passage of 14, and it lists all the nations that Saul fought against, Right now, Israel is surrounded by nations that attack them all the time. Moab, Philistines, Amalek. And so this call to um, harem is part of just the ongoing warfare of that time. Um, And it's a call for a specific act of war against Amalek. And it's not, um, this isn't like just betrayal. It's not just like sneaking up in the middle of the night and doing this. This is war between nations, but it's a specific kind that is meant to completely remove um, the the losing side. And so, yeah, it's devastating, but it's also part of the judgment of God in the earth here that Amalek was an evil people and their time for justice came. And you know what? If 
if they they were able to defend themselves in military might, I'm sure they would have persisted in, in living. But there was uh, fair warfare, and the victory was given because of justice. That's what's going on here. Verse 4, So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. So this is a large army. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you shown kindness to all the people of Israel when you came up out of Egypt, when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So the Kenites are descendants of Moses' father-in-law. And so they were a people group who were living in that area because Moses' father-in-law went with Israel, went with Moses. And so they appear a few times in the book of Judges. But what's going on here, this is how you can see that this isn't just like terrorism warfare, that Saul actually seeks out a people group that showed hospitality, which was a, a huge thing in the Middle East to show hospitality to people as they're traveling. They showed hospitality to Israel as tr Israel was coming out of Egypt, the slave people being rescued from the devastation of Egypt's slavery, the killing of the firstborns and their, their years and years under e Egyptians' heels. As slaves, they're coming out of slavery, they're coming out as a wandering people, and the Kenites showed hospitality and kindness to them, and so their lives are being spared. So you can see that this isn't just reckless warfare, this is a just move because the Kenites are being saved for um, their historical kindness to Israel. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. Notice how the word Egypt is coming up quite a bit. Amalek was cruel as they came out of Egypt, Kenites were kind as they came out of Egypt, and now this warfare spreads even as far as this place Shur, which is described as being east of Egypt. So it's trying to just remind you of historical factors here. And he, Saul, just verse 8, took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction. Excuse me all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good, and they would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. Now, here is Saul's big sin. He went and he, these things that God had claimed for his own possession, he just gave him the junk. He devoted to destruction anything worthless, but the good stuff he kept for himself. The king he kept for himself as a prisoner, and the best of all, the people and the animals he kept for himself. Um, sorry, not the people, I think just the animals. So the, essentially what's happening here is Saul is pillaging from the Lord. All this stuff belonged to the Lord. He declared it belonging to him, and by keeping it, they're actually pillaging from God's possessions. And this reminds us a little bit of Cain from Cain and Abel. Remember in those, that first worship there, Abel gave God the best of his livestock and Cain just gave him some of his grain. And we have the same thing here where Saul is giving the Lord the worst of what is captured here, but keeping the best for himself. And so this is that same heart of um, false, shallow worship that God is going to confront this time through Samuel, not personally like he did with Cain, but through Samuel. Verse 10, And the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. 
And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So interestingly, who is Samuel angry at? It doesn't exactly say is he angry at Saul for his choice, or is he angry at the Lord for saying this thing? It's not clear in the moment. Verse 12, And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. Ah, so here we're learning more about Saul. He has this battle, he wins it, and what does he do? He sets up a monument to himself. And this almost contrasts with the last chapter, chapter 14, where after a battle, Saul sets up a altar to the Lord to sacrifice all these animals that the people had captured from the Philistines. And now they're not sacrificing the animals. There, he set up a monument to himself. So he's becoming more and more like a pagan king and more and more selfish in what he's doing here. And Samuel came to Saul, verse 13, and Saul said to him, Blessed be the Lord. Sorry, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. So here's Saul. He's, I don't even know if he understands his own heart anymore. Um, but on the outside, he's trying to appear to be a man of faith and a man of faithfulness. And Samuel is going to bust him. Verse 14, And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul, so Saul's going to get defensive and be a truth twister, just like Adam was a truth twister, excuse me, when he was busted by the Lord in the garden. Saul's going to do that here. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, from the for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. So here it is. The people did this, and they did it for the best possible motives. The people brought this stuff from the Malachites, and it's for this great worship time we were planning on having the whole time. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. So he doesn't believe him. Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, verse 17, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners. See, this is, again, just because this is a, a judgment from the Lord, that's why it's emphasized here these are sinners. They're not just innocent people at all. These are people who um, are experiencing a judgment from God destruction the sinners the Amalekites and fight against them until they are consumed why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord so there's God's own um, perspective you didn't listen by not doing harem right away and it's because you were pouncing on the spoil yourselves and doing evil in my sight so when they say oh we were going to have this great worship time to the Lord uh, God does not believe it and neither does Samuel. Verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things, devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So again, this is like Adam blaming Eve for what happened in the garden, just like Eve blamed the snake for what happened in the garden. Saul is blaming the people but also trying to say it was for the best possible motives. 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, 
and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Boom. <laughs> Mushroom cloud. This is the big roast. Um, Samuel just says to Saul, your obedience by faith is the most important worship. The fact that you disobeyed by not committing harem right away is no excuse and is not more and even if you went and had this big sacrifice party at Gilgal it's not worth more to God than just quick obedience plus they know that Saul's heart was not in a good place and so he has rebelled against the word which he might as well have been consulting mediums the sin of divination which Saul will actually do at the end of his life chapters later and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. So the fact that Saul thinks he can just make decisions on the fly when he's got God's command in front of him is might as well be bowing down to an idol. And what is the idol? The idol is Saul. Saul is worshiping himself. Remember a few verses before he set up a monument to himself on his way to Gilgal. And so that's seized upon. And it's like, yes, Saul, you have set up an idol to yourself and you are worshiping yourself because you're not submitting to the word of the Lord and because you won't because you rejected God's word, God is rejecting you. So Saul has pronounced his own judgment on himself by what he's done. And the fact that he didn't quickly repent probably increased the judgment upon him. Verse 24, Saul decides to finally come clean. So verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Finally, the truth comes out. And do you remember when God was rebuking Adam? He says, because you listened to the voice of your wife and because you listened to the voice of the servant, serpent. So there are echoes to the Garden of Eden here. And do you remember even when Saul got started, he fought Nahash and he was like the new Adam who's crushing the snake. And now he's actually become like the old Adam because he's listening to other people. He's listening to other voices besides the word of the Lord. He, and, um, and now he's admitting it here. Verse 25, now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So Saul is more concerned right now with appearing to be standing beside Samuel still instead of how his heart is actually doing. This is probably not a real repentance. Verse 27, as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Okay, so here's this important scene. Saul begins to confess, though it's pretty shallow. He grabs Samuel's robe and tears it. And Samuel takes that moment to proclaim a prophetic thing that the Lord has torn the kingdom from Saul and has given it to a neighbor. And so here we have this setup. This is one of the big parts of this story and why this, this story begins the rise of David's life. So at the end of 14, that's kind of the end of Saul being the king by himself. And why we have this rejection story to begin David's story of ascending is because this is when Samuel proclaims that a better man than Saul has been chosen and the kingdom is going to be given to him. And that's when we meet David next. And then he also talks about the glory of Israel not lying or having regret. 
And this is, um, it's a bit of a conundrum because Samuel says to Saul here that God won't have regret. And then later on, the scripture is going to say that the Lord regretted having made Saul king over Israel. And so there's a bit of a theological conundrum there about how that's put together. And I'll talk about it in a sec. Um, but Samuel has mercy on Saul and goes with him and is present when Saul does his shallow worship of the Lord for political reasons. Verse 32, Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. So again, just uh, Agag, Agag thinks that he's been spared because he was spared. So Saul was not telling the truth that he was getting ready to do harem on Agag. But when he comes, um, Samuel is going to fulfill God's will and execute Agag. And you can hear that Samuel, again, has justice on his mind. Agag has been a murderer of children. Your sword has made women childless. And so now your mother's going to experience the same thing. So justice is coming upon him. Tit for tat is coming upon him. As you have done, so it shall be done to you is coming upon him. And that's why Agag is destroyed before the Lord. Um, in Gilgal, verse 34, Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So a few things going on in chapter, verse 34 and 35 here. You have this parting. Do you remember chapter 14 ended with a parting? Remember, Saul went back from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went over to their own way. And you have, again, the same thing, like Saul's unbelief is causing um, a parting. Saul's unbelief is causing division here. And Saul's unbelief, now you have Samuel going to Ramah and you have Saul going to his house, and they don't see each other again until the day of Saul's death. And even when they do do that, it's through divination. Samuel's going to come back from the dead to tell Saul that he's hopeless. Um, but interestingly, it says that Samuel grieved over Saul. So that anger at the beginning of the chapter when God's talking to Samuel about rejecting Saul, that anger is probably anger over Saul being rejected because Samuel does care about Saul. He does care about him, and so he's upset about what's happened. And then it says the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So that's where it says before that God of Israel, glory of Israel doesn't have regret. And now it says he does have regret. And so people will look at that and say, oh, the Bible contradicts itself or whatever. When I read stuff like this, I think this story is such a finely honed piece of art where the narrator has very obviously been incredibly careful about putting this together. It's impossible for me to think that he just didn't notice that a few sentences away from each other, he quote-unquote contradicted himself. I don't think that's possible. So uh, instead, I look at it and I say, okay, so how's this working? So here's a few things. Um, it could be that Samuel was wrong to say that the glory of Israel does not have regret. Okay, so it could just be like, because the last verse, verse 35, is the narrator speaking, and the narrator is a prophet. He's speaking from God's perspective. The Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. That's the truth. So it's possible that Samuel is just misspeaking or not speaking properly. However, I would say that Samuel at this moment is speaking as a prophet as well, and so he's speaking God's word. And so I would take both of them as being true, and so you just have to ask how they fit together. So how I'd see this fit together is that what it's saying is that 
God does actually regret or he's changed his mind about Saul being king over Israel. And that's obviously true because Saul has acted in so much unbelief that God said, you're not going to have an enduring kingdom. You're not going to stay king. I'm going to replace you. So that sense of changing his mind or changing what's going on in response to Saul's unbelief is obviously happening. So it could just be when it says the glory of Israel does not lie or have regret. He's not a man that he should have regret. It could just mean like he's not going to not do something about it when you've changed. Um, Your unbelief means that you can't continue to have a kingdom over Israel. And so God is um, going to not suffer regret. He's not going to just be stuck without doing anything about it. He's actually going to act. And so that ties in with him saying he's going to give the kingdom to a man better than you. God isn't just going to sit in regret. He's not going to just um, say, oh, there's nothing I can do about the Saul thing. No, he's going to take action. He's going to give the kingdom to somebody else because he he does change his mind. He regrets um, the fact that this unbeliever is now the king right now. And so he's going to act on it and not just do nothing. So that's one way of understanding it. But what I wouldn't say is, you know, the Bible contradicts itself. It's a, an intricate work of art, which means that it doesn't always do what we expect it to do. Sometimes it says things we don't understand. Sometimes it doesn't say things we wish it would say. But we come to it as a, a created story put together by somebody who's at least competent. And I would say a master. I would say an absolute master of storytelling puts this together. And so I come to it as a student wanting to learn and understand. And that's what I, how I would read this. I would say Samuel's probably right. And what he means is you don't get to keep on making God regret having made you king. He's going to move on from you by making another person king because you haven't lived up to the calling of your station. All right. So, um, you know what? Here's a good reminder for us. Um, unbelief catches up with us. And so God is a good father, and he's regularly in the process of disciplining his children and leading us into truer and truer faith, because that's where the blessing is. And so when God sees something in us that needs to change, he will come to us through our conscience, through the word, through the word of a friend, through situations. It'll be like he's sending Samuel to us to correct us. And our job is to not be independent about it. Our job is to not rebel against the word of the Lord, but instead to come to it with faith and submission and want to be wholeheartedly obedient. And the story does point towards Christ. Even the new king, David, is not 100% faithful to the Lord, and he has great sins and is punished for it. The only totally faithful king is the Lord Jesus Christ, who never rebels against the word of the Lord, even when the call of the word was to suffer as a criminal and to suffer and die for our sin. He's 100% faithful to God and 100% faithful to his people, and because of that, we have salvation. Because of that, we get to live forever because we have a faithful king who was 100% submitted to the will of his Father. And that is our great joy in this life. Amen.